Hello, you're listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast, a brand new series recorded entirely in lockdown. This series is part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, aka Elise, powered by UCL. Elise is an accessible, specially designed community for entrepreneurs who are disabled or whose work focuses on accessibility. This series is packed full of change makers, innovators, and partners all of them connected to Elise. Built on the Paralympic legacy, we're working with several partners, including Disability Rights UK, Plexor, and the Global Disability Innovation Hub to pioneer the development of products and services in and around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Each episode, you'll hear from our host, Matt Pieri. Matt founded Sociability, an app which helps disabled people find accessible spaces such as cafes and bars. This app is now available to download. Hi everybody and welcome to the ninth episode of the Inclusive Innovators podcast. We really hope everybody's doing okay out there in this tough time and national lockdown 27.0. We really wish everybody all the best and, you know, we'll get through this together. Um, But this week on the Inclusive Innovators podcast, we're really lucky to chat with Gavin Poole, the CEO of Here East. We learn a lot more about the vision behind Here East and the inclusive innovation hub that it's becoming. And we really hope you enjoy it and also learn something. Have a great week. Uh, Gavin Poole, CEO of Here East, thanks so much for being here. We're looking forward to having this conversation for a while. Um, Gavin, can I ask you just to kick things off by giving us a bit of introduction to yourself and what you're doing at Here East specifically? So, um, Gavin Poole, I'm Chief Executive Here East, and what I've been doing for the last eight years is a conversion of the former International Press and Broadcast Centre on the Olympic Park and turning it into a new technology uh, and uh, campus for technology-based companies and those working in the creative sector. Uh, it was an idea that uh, myself and a colleague who runs uh, Plexor uh, had together back in 2011-2012, and we won the rights to the buildings as, from part of a competitive tender uh, to allow us then to do a full transformation of, of the building. We've approached it with a from a non-property background, so Andrew is a telecoms and data center uh, background. Uh, and, and a trained commercial lawyer. Uh, I'm an aerospace engineer, ex-military, but I also worked in politics before starting this project. Uh, and I ran the Center for Social Justice, looking at social policy background um, and trying to influence governments to, to uh, adopt more um, socially aware policy platforms um, to take into government. But it doesn't matter what, what color of government you had, whether it was a conservative or Labour. So I ran a think tank for a few years uh, and then we started this project together. And that's where this whole program um, came about. So it's a, a social regeneration program using the might of you know, a million plus square feet of buildings as our vehicles to deliver change into this part of London. Awesome. And so on a bit more of a day-to-day kind of scenario, what does that look like in terms of how you're going about this and bringing in players into this space that you've spoken about? I mean, it's taken many forms over the past number of years. Um, you know, as I said, we've been doing this eight years. There was the whole bid, bid time at the beginning. Then it was getting the company structure, the funding, um, getting Delancey um, to buy into the project and now ultimately we own it, um, to be able to uh, work with the legacy company and then do the full transformation through planning, community engagement, uh, and then the transformation work ourselves from 2016. Uh, sorry, to up to 2016 when we kind of finished the work in that July, so four years after the Games. Since then, and that was when the whole of the refurbishment was done, but since then, um, our our work has been very much focused on um, curating the right type of businesses to come here. And there's many different areas. Now, our higher level vision was to create a space where, uh, we called it the four E's, we'd have uh, enhanced education offer. When you're building a new cluster like this, uh, we recognise the importance that education played, particularly from a, from a high level of education to build out intellectual property patents, as they measure in America, but research and masters and postgraduate students looking at ideas, concepts to, to think about the new products and services of tomorrow. So we brought on universities and that was the education bit, but also um, we have um, community managers who run social programmes in partnership with, with others. Uh, to work with local schools and colleges to be able to run 
educational programs, platform, um, whether it's in school term um, or out of school term, which is more often the case, uh, to basically look at the full spectrum of education, think about what we as a large stakeholder now in the area uh, can help influence and support. Uh, then we have the enterprise level businesses. Now we wanted this to play a place where large international global businesses will come here, not as an HQ, but more as a, um, as a delivery unit focused on collaboration, innovation, the role of technology in their business models, um, look at it away about human-centered design. Uh, and we wanted those types of businesses. And that's where we've ended up with the likes of Ford, Sega, Matthews Fashion BT, for example, uh, all, all here doing just, um, just that. Um, we also, you know, from an employment point of view, we looked at um, looking at a space of over a million square feet is probably about five and a half, six thousand people working and studying here. Um, so we wanted a way to bring in the jobs in which the global players have a role. But something I carried from my social think tank days and social policy think tank days was, you know, you can take a job, but isn't it better to create a job? So let's think about how we can support and grow either the micro economy, the local economy, but also, you know, the big businesses which are going to become the giants of tomorrow. And that's where the whole concept of Plexo, our innovation centre, came from. It was in our bid as the London Innovation Centre, and to paraphrase, it was an innovation centre the likes of which London has never seen before, a full service, a suite of services to help you establish a business, incorporate it and grow, whether it be legal or marketing or product design or development or hiring or any aspects of growing your businesses, those services will be available for you in a very flexible manner. And that's what we've delivered. Uh, through, through Plexor. And then the final one was the environment. So the, these things, the environment was a bit of a double-headed monster, which was kind of like, let's, let's think about creating the environment for all of these previous three things, you know, the enterprise, education, employment to grow, but also let's think about our environment. Let's think about the reuse of the buildings. We didn't just bulldoze a site and, and start again. We reused um, the buildings in, in, you know, yes, we recloud one of them, but all of the infrastructure we've reused even down to the steel gantry on the eastern side of the broadcast centre, we kept it to, as almost like an industrial signpost to the heritage of the buildings, like you see in Hackney Wick, like you see um, down on the three mills uh, on the islands. So it's actually it's a reference point to our heritage, but then we've reused them. So we've put Charles and the, the Tramfree team in there with 21 bespoke studios using zero carbon build of wood to, to make sure that we get the micro businesses. So for us, the environment was very important about creating and designing the right type of environment, but also protecting our environment. I think that was the overall vision there was really important. And now we curate against that vision to bring the right businesses and universities in. Amazing. Thanks, Gavin. That's a super comprehensive overview, but also it sounds really exciting and how all the different parts factor in together. Um, so I've got a few questions around that, but before we get there, I just wanted to sort of go back to your point about you know your background and how you came to this. One of the questions that we often ask everybody is what was their you know innovation inspiration? What really pushed them to to want to work on this issue and just you know to dedicate like the last eight years in particular? Um, you mentioned that you were from the you know uh, aerospace background and then in the military and then a think tank social justice. So can you just give us a bit of an insight into I guess yeah what has driven you to want to focus on you know on this particular problem and project and, and how you've got here specifically? Yeah, so I, um, I mean, the, the program in terms of the whole of the inclusivity within Here East, an inclusivity program, or Here East more generic? Here East more generically, I mean, why did this sort of, you know, strike you as something that you had to do and, and you know, start? Yeah. So I'd worked in policy for a number of years, four years in the think tank, and then in my last sort of probably six years in the military, two of my tours, which were either side of my command tour, um, I was working in defence policy, either with the defence secretary and his team or um, a writer in government. So I've kind of moved on from that policy policy. It's just, can we just get on and go and do stuff now? And I saw with the potential for this project, you know, bearing in mind, we wrote the vision, we put the bid together, we won the bid, we negotiated the deal. But what we saw is very much as a, it's a social regeneration programme. The buildings are a vehicle for us to enable us to, to deliver the social programs through employment, bringing in new um, organisations into East London, uh, creating jobs, opportunities, apprenticeships, thinking about the education impact that we can have. So for me, it was like, okay, let's look at the policies that we've had, we've been pushing into government. What can the private sector do 
on its own to enable it to deliver that without actually having to rely on a, either national, regional, city or local government. And that's kind of motivated Andrew and myself to get onto that. So how, how can we, it sounds very twee, but how can we make a difference? How can we make a difference in a way which is going to be very positive into the local environment and the regional environment, as opposed to people feeling it's been forced upon them? And I think that's where we were very fortunate because we did enjoy something of an Olympic bounce. We did in a negative way, I suppose, which was a lot of local people felt left out, excluded from what the Olympics had to offer the area. And we came along talking a different language and we didn't want to be seen as this spaceship landing in someone's backyard. We actually wanted a place where young people felt comfortable coming. Hopefully they'd have been to see us in some form with their schools, with their colleges, with their clubs. So actually when it was time to move into the labour market or leave education formally, this became a natural sort of hunting ground to come and get jobs, which is why we completely structured our website to make sure that we've got a jobs first policy on there that you know, anybody on campus who's recruiting and put it up on our website, anybody can go to our website, find out what's, what's around, whether it's in Sports Interactive or Ford or Startup in Plex, or we try and capture everything and make sure we signpost people to them. So for, for, for us, it was, it was really important to make sure that we were doing something with our time and building, you know, I was very critical of the Olympic legacy when I ran a think tank. We even published papers saying it was going to come to nothing um, in terms of sporting legacy. So actually it was time for the, us to step up and say, you know what, we can really do something. And our role is about economic and education legacy. And hopefully we are making a difference on that. I guess to the point of like, yeah, what were some of the challenges that you faced in terms of like, getting social regeneration as a priority for this space? Because I imagine there were particularly on a private side, so I'm guessing there's potentially other interests of, you know. I think, you know, from our, from our you know, investors now owners, it was very clear they wanted to make a, um, a difference and they were bought into the vision all along. I think for us, um, we created this vision, um, which unbeknown to us, a group of people had uh, privately been saying, what we need to do with the broadcast center when it's being built. So this was back in 2007. So four years before we came onto the scene, was to create a, a new hub, picking up on all of the creativity which exists in this part of London, and to think about the potential of what was being built in East, you know, the Shoreditch um, areas uh, of Hackney, uh, to, to, to think about how, how this could actually build upon that. So when they saw our vision and they saw the commitment we had, they also saw the financial clout we've been able to pull together in terms of levels of investment we could bring, I think they were genuinely excited. And the fact that we were looking at it in a way which wasn't just a case of, okay, we'll build it and then we'll just fill it up. And it doesn't matter who we fill it up with because they're all being jobs. It was a case of, no, we want to, we want to be vision led. And we still are to this day, eight years on, you know, we, we say no to people. Um, you know, 25% left to, to let, which is still, you know, just under 300,000 square foot of space. That's, you know, it's a big place. But for us, being vision-led meant that we were able to knock back any critics, of which there were many in the early days, saying, you know, we won't come to Olympic Park, the Olympic Park will be dead, the Olympic Park is not going to be the right place, we can't get there, it's in the middle of nowhere, what on earth are you doing? What, you know, it's all about the roundabout and, and, and Canary Wharf, and, you know, I'm just being a West End if I'm a creative. And we just, like, look, we hear what you're saying, but you're all saying you need great connectivity, digital. You need better, more affordable space. You need more space. Um, you need open space because the next generation of employees uh, and your creatives uh, want to be away from the urban sort of mass of more built up areas. They want to be in a vibrant, fun environment. And we've got all of that. So, you know, it's fine if you don't want to come. If it's not right for your business, that's absolutely fine. Doesn't matter what I say, I'm not gonna convince you. But I just wanna let you know your competitors see it and they're coming. And, you know, we still get asked to this day, oh, who's your, who's your biggest competitor? And, you know, it's not an arrogant, it's, it's not arrogant to say we don't have any. It's not because we think we're the best. That's not the case. The, the, the statement of we don't have any competitors is it doesn't matter. Even if I make it five pounds a square foot cheaper than somewhere else, if it doesn't work for that company, they're not going to come. And, and therefore, you know, it, if it's right for you, it's right for you. If it's not, it's not. And, and what we hear more often than not is this is a place for my business because I recognize this is not a real estate transaction. This is about business transformation of my business. This is about accessing the talent base, which is in this part of the world. 
This is about working with a management team who fundamentally believe in my company and allowing me to come and join them, but also the expectation is for me to participate in their vision to be able to reach into the community around us and to help promote and build talent and capacity building that environment. And that's incredibly exciting for my business. Um, and we hear this played back to us time and time again. It just makes me smile when you see, see the penny drop and someone goes, I get it. This is not about an office. This is about joining you guys and helping me transform my, my business and also grow it to another level. This is about acting in a role of you being an enabler to allow me not to worry about my real estate problems. You solve those for me, but actually to allow me to focus on what's important in my business to make sure that we continue to grow, attract the best people we can, develop and nurture the best talent we can in the local area so that we future-proof ourselves. And it's great because I'm not gonna have a landlord who says, thanks for the lease, you know, please pay my, my rent collector every quarter and I'll see you in four years, it's time to renegotiate at year five. We're here every day. We're here talking to people every day. I've literally just come from a meeting, someone wants to grow and you know, it's, it's a, it's a process of, you know, we could do this, we could do that. You know, it's not really a negotiation. It's about what they want. And they're turning around to us saying, look, you know, if it works, if there's some space you wouldn't want us to have, but, but you know, you want us to have this space, talk to us about it, and we'll work out what's best for both parties. So for us, it's about building a partnership with, with others and to really fulfill our function of being an enabler into their space and their sectors and understanding exactly what it is they need, whether they're a retailer on Canal side, whether they're a charity like Scope who is based with us, whether it's the safeguarding, preserving the national collection for the study and research of design and making sure that the VNA do not have to move out of London into an airfield in Wiltshire, but we can keep it here so that the global cultural tribe come to London and come to this part of London, or whether it's about a broadcaster wanting to create a new studio just for four weeks while they can broadcast the Champions League uh, and the Europas. Yeah, they're the things that we get involved in because we understand their business and we work with them to satisfy theirs with estate. And I think that's what's really important for us is to deliver on that enabling exercise. Cool. No, that's super helpful to, to hear. So I guess to push on that a little bit more, um, here East and particularly East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone are becoming, you know, has, has launched as a, a real hub of disability-led innovation and, you know, as like an example of inclusive innovation more broadly. Uh, you've mentioned here that like a lot of the time the business needs to know that this is the right place for it and therefore it has to have these priorities or it has to be inclined to want to, you know, engage with the community this way. So to avoid preaching to the converted, like how are you going about getting other people into the space? You know, obviously there's lots of big names there already, like Ford and um, you know BT and other players like that. But you know, this is to be a success, I presume. This is something that has to be really widespread, and you want you know other businesses who aren't thinking about that now to change their minds and to come and, and join. So how are you going about that process of, of not just like working with those who are keen, but trying to advocate for others who may not think this is a, a relevant consideration or, you know, it doesn't meet their bottom line, there's more priorities to, to do business-wise to start changing that mindset? So I think, I think for us, you know, it's, there's a wider exercise of um, awareness of what we're doing, awareness of how it helps companies and how it helps them realize their full potential so they're not excluding others from uh, working with them and being able to open up new talent pools, which they possibly would have um, avoided because they wouldn't know how to engage appropriately. And I think being able to communicate that message uh, to them in using tools such as this, which you know, we'll use for our own social media assets and our own channels, working and explaining this um, to more traditional um, uh, uh, agency models, property agency models, but also for ourselves running our own underground um, communication schemes as well, whether it's um, the videos we've worked on with uh, Publicist Poke, or whether it's a branding and marketing exercise, whether it's working with different um, comms channels uh, and messaging into mainstream media to say, you know, to talk about some of the things that we're doing, so it pricks people's ears. What we tend to find, we can do a top-down, we can go into C-suite and we can talk to them about the opportunity presents. Um, what we tend to find is it's really interesting working in middle management where they've probably got a, a business unit on the larger corporates, a business unit, um, they've got an innovation team, they've got a team that are trying something new. 
Um, if we can market into the, those communities and get access to those communities, which we spend a lot of time doing, um, then it becomes a no-brainer. It becomes self-fulfilling that you know, as soon as they know there's an opportunity for them to do something, they want to come here. And it, whether it's a slightly larger with a little bit more financial clout, they come to here east, or if it's testing and trying something new, they'll probably end up with Andrew in Plexel, uh, which is a subsidiary company. Um, and they'll start off in Plexel and then potentially grow. So a, a lot of it is, it's, you know, we did a lot of groundwork, talking, promoting, writing, um, building awareness, building awareness internationally, as well as hyper-local and local. And I think if you cover all of those bases, then it just becomes, it becomes obvious that people who want to see change will come to a place where they can see change happening. And to what extent is this, you know, I guess, this process of, of awareness raising and advocacy to what extent does it involve essentially people from these areas, you know, from the four boroughs that the Heres is based around and, and the community themselves? Or is it very much, like you said, sort of it starts by going into businesses and sort of trying to convince them? Or do you have people, you know, in the community going in and, and speaking to the importance of what it's done or like the changes that it's, it's seen? How much of the kind of proof is in the pudding in terms of the advocacy? It, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a real mixture, to be honest. I mean, if we were... When I go back to when we started to recruit the wider teams, I, I remember it very clearly from December 2014, there's probably four or five of us. Uh, and, and by December 2015, there was 32 of us. But all of our recruiting roadshows that we did, um, we only did in the Olympic growth boroughs. We didn't go anywhere else. Um, so we basically took out spaces, put on roadshows, promoted within the councils, promoted locally, Flyer drops, use local media um, to say, come and um, uh, come and see what we're up to. There was a lot of interest in what was going to go on over here. Um, and what we wanted to do was say, look, we want to recruit locally, we want to employ locally for two reasons. First of all, we believe having local workforce means that people in the community buy in to what we're doing because we're now seen as a significant employer in the local community to support the community. What we also want is, you know, our whole ethos is about building team, one team. My whole military background was all about building high-performing teams from across many different disciplines to go and do, I think, to somewhere. So for me, building a high-performing team meant I needed to really energize people. We needed to really make sure it was a fun, vibrant, engaging um, place to work where people took pride in what they were doing and we invested in them, uh, both in time, time spent with them, uh, in how they work, in where they work, in where, even down to simple things like where their rest facilities are, which in the property world can be pretty ropey, but ours, we gave them the view in the house down by the canal and uh, the old gardens and everything else. So for us, it was a place that when they went back home, when they went into their family members or when they went into their friends' houses or whether they went into a bar or a restaurant and they were talking to friends, they spoke about what we were doing and they, you know, we wanted them to say it's the best job I've ever had. And I think for us having that real community focus and that local first approach was really, really important. That played out into all of the leases which we put. We encourage people to do a local supply chain wherever it is possible and appropriate to do so. We asked them to do a recruit first policy. We asked them to pay above the London minimum wage. Um, you know, we can't force them because it's their business, but encourage them and put that in our leases. So I think that flows through and actually people see real tangible benefits by doing that. Also, and, and, and here's, here's you know, a real time example, which is the benefit that we've had by having that approach, which we set back in 2014. And in fact, it was in our vision in 2012, is that throughout the pandemic, we've had a lot of local people who can literally walk to work. And we needed people here because we, you know, we've got a big building, it needs maintaining. Now I call it driving the buildings. It needs to be managed appropriate, it needs to be kept secure. And of course, we need to keep it clean because obviously that's the way we have the husbandry effect, good husbandry effect. The ability for people to simply walk, cycle, or even to simply drive five minutes to get here has paid dividends. And I think there's a great example why people should think about local employment. The next, the next piece behind it all though. Uh, is the talent, you know, the, the talent on your doorstep, you know, you invest in it, they talk about it, but also if it flows through then into they want to do something. And then if they're encouraging others and actually it comes back into now, people are all in, 
there's always people locally who are starting businesses. How do we, how do we encourage that? And particularly in this part of the world, you know, probably more than most, the whole creativity here. And the trampery for us, you know, Charles and I have been try trying to find a way that we could work together for about four years. And, and then it was like, okay, look, the Gantry Project. You know, we're building 21 bespoke studios. Our whole focus um, was about creating affordable space, which might be appropriate for artists, it might not be, but what it's really appropriate for is micro and ultra local businesses based on the Wickham Fish Island who can come here and stay here without having to be potentially placed at risk by being decanted out because of the volume of redevelopment that's going on in the in the area. And for us, you know, it's great. You know, what they've got over on those 21 studios, some are multi-let, is over 75% of the businesses came from Fish Island and Hackneywick. So for us, that's a huge success measure because now, you know, you speak to the companies over there and they're really excited, you know, we've got to stay, it's in a part of London, we wanted to build a business, we've got a place which is affordable, we know it's secure, you guys aren't going anywhere, we love what Charles and the team do with the Trampery, we've got these amazing zero carbon studios, uh, which are incredibly super efficient, and, and the views across the park. So for us having that, that sort of, you know, tangible level of, you know, the talent, the local staff, the benefits of that, and then local business, I think is, is really helps maintain this whole sort of discussion around the value of engaging locally. You know, we, you know yes, we're big. We're one of the biggest, you know, yes, we've got Lemley's otherwise by Westfield, but as a single developer, we've got 1.2 million square feet of space. So we know, we recognize we're big, we're a big stakeholder in this area, but it, it means that we're even more dedicated to trying to work locally. Yeah, fantastic. And have you found, I guess, to some of that that point there about the perception of you know you being big it's a big shiny building it's a tech hub like you know it's got the olympic legacy do you find that there is you know some of the level of self-selection that local businesses think well it's not for me i'm not at that scale or you know I, we want to do something that's not tech related or have you found that in terms of uh you know engaging with the kind of perception that plexal and here east are building into the space for better or worse i mean sometimes people want to stay you know the other side of the canal um, on the wick and they feel more comfortable with that. And it comes back to my point, which is, you know, we, we can't be all things to all men. We, we, you know, we, we really, you know, if it works for you, we'd love to have you here. And we're not purposely trying to be exclusive, we're not. We want to be fully inclusive. But what, you know, it, it just doesn't work for some people. They want to be in a different type of environment. I think what people do find is they, they do come over here. You know, whether you're an artist on the WIC, as you know, we've had quite a few artists work with us, whether you're a business on the WIC, um, you're now on our supply chain, you're providing all sorts of services or goods into um, us, whether it's through our marketing teams or running events with us, or in a good, in a good old day when we used to have events. Uh, so so I, I think we've done, you know, a reasonable job of trying to engage. And if they don't want, you know, people don't want to come, you know, we completely respect that. And it's not because we, I don't think it's because we're offensive to them. I think it's just the fact that we just don't work, work for them. The fact the canal side, I believe is, is a good example of success for us in the way that you know, we, we specifically went out and targeted local um, retailers who we knew were looking for another site or looking to move into a larger site. And then being able to help them. You know, we've literally had, you know, we've had two, two uh, failures on Canal side. One voluntarily just backed up and decided to go into another pub in, uh, in Shoreditch. And, uh, and, and another one that just didn't work out for them for all, all sorts of reasons. But, you know, we've backfilled those units and we've got now, you know, we've got one of the world leading electric skateboard companies with us. Um, and, and now we've got, you know, a new bar that opened a week ago called The Lock-In. So for us, you know, the, these are vibrant, boutique, independently owned by locals um, in the area uh, who are committed to, um, to the canal, and the canal side and to here east. And we support them and help them as much as we can and are able, um, and you know, things like, you know, investing now into a whole lot of warnings to extend the outdoor space for the winter. Um, we were you know, super generous to them as we went through the COVID, as you'd expect, you know, we, even before they'd asked, we supported them. So for us, it's about working because we see Canal Side and we see our role as it's a community asset. Now we opened it before we had, we literally had the university and BT Sport. So we probably had about 250 to 350 people on site, uh, which is less than we've got now. We're coming out of the pandemic. 
uh, and we opened all the retail on our side, but we supported them, we marketed them, we promoted them, we funded all sorts of promotional activity because our commitment to the legacy company around the park, our commitment to the local community, to local councillors, the GLA, was we want to build this into a community resource where it doesn't matter whether you are young, cool, unlike me, trendy, or living on the wick, or whether you are a grandmother who is doing daycare for your children because they're working and they've got young children, or whether you're grown up and you've got older kids and you're coming here before you go to a West Ham match in the stadium, we want to be a place where we all feel comfortable. And, and it's amazing. You can go down to Canal Side and you'll see you know, older people coming out for a coffee or tea and cake in the afternoon. You'll see younger people having breakfast in the morning. Um, after nine o'clock at night, you'll see the younger people still here going out and partying. But it's all things, that is all things to the community. And that was our commitment. We really wanted that to work. It's not just words. We've spent you know, the best part of five years trying to make that and lock it into the wider community asset base, which is here to stay. I think we've done it. It's been a great success during the pandemic. Some will argue it wasn't because there was too many people. We managed our way through all of that sensibly, but we've kept local businesses trading, local businesses providing a service, local businesses doing meal drops into the community, and now local businesses opening themselves back up into thriving restaurants again. So I think it's it, you know, it's in our DNA. We want to help. Yeah, awesome. And I think it is this, this point about like trying to break down some of these stereotypes around what, you know, startups are and what tech businesses look like and what you know even big businesses look like in terms of how they engage with the public um and so part of it is i think putting them into the melting pot and i guess to that point one of the things that i wanted to you know pick your brain on is that there's i don't know whether by design or by accident there's a growing focus on disability in here so you've got disability rights uk scope you know the global disability innovation hub um and you know a significant kind of portion of Plexel is being redesigned to be accessible at the moment. So um, I wanted to ask in two senses. One, you know, how did disability factor into this sort of regeneration agenda and the innovation agenda that Here East set out to do? And then secondly, how do you see these organisations interacting with technology as part of this innovation process more broadly? So it's, it's a hugely underrepresented um, area of society. And uh, for transparency, I used to be a trustee of scope for about five years. Um, and that's not the reason why they're here. I, I'd actually reached the point where um, Here East was beginning to take up literally 120% of my time and I was unable to really fulfill a proper role as a trustee as I had been enjoying in the early days of this project. So unfortunately, I had to stand down. Um, and then surprise when I came through the office and I saw our old company secretary and a couple of others in our marketing suite being shown down by an agent. So I was like, oh, that's rather great. Um, they were listening to what I was raving on about all those board meetings. Um, so, so for me, it worked, it worked really well. But the other aspect, uh, um, interesting piece of it as well, there was a, a wonderful lady who I was on the, the board of Scope with called Rachel Wallach. Um, it was a, a charming um, young lady who is a wheelchair user, became a wheelchair user when she was 18. And um, she set up a, a program called Hack on Wheels. We provided some advice. We gave them some free space here. Um, she was um, helping turn it into a company. Yet she went to the West Coast, did a, an MBA at Stanford while she was still running um, the Hack on Wheels program. Uh, and, uh, and it really opened my eyes to you know, what the role of technology can deliver in terms of um, making the world less disabled for disabled people. Um, being able to provide um, services and products through the use of technology at a much more affordable price, um, either in our own communities or in more disadvantaged communities um, globally. So how could you create a six to $8,000 wheelchair uh, and be able to manufacture it for $50 by use of 3D printed and standardized parts? And this is what, what Rachel was so inspiring um, to me. And then she went and joined the team of GDI Hub as one of their original sort of founders uh, and went to VO to, to launch it all. So for, for me, it was a real manifestation that, you know, isn't this great? Legacy company were really important to getting behind the Global Dis Disability uh, Innovation Hub, um, as well as I, I think you've got uh, the team from GDI Hub coming to talk on one of these podcasts anyway. But, um, you know, the Luft University, UCL, 
Plexor sell. So obviously all got behind um, that and then supported it. We've got the 10 million, initial 10 million, and then another 10 million from government. Held a big global conference here, had 16 various sectors of state from around the world here. So for me, it was really important to be able to, with a social policy background, having run the CSJ, uh, looking at the importance of this uh, through, through two lenses. The first one, looking at uh, how, can we make, how can we make the world more accessible for those who find that quite difficult and challenging. And secondly, how do businesses access a talent pool, which it's not because they are scared, it's just they don't know how to access that talent pool. They don't know how to engage with people with disabilities and they don't know how it's going to impact their business in a really positive way um, by employing people with disabilities. And it's not about giving them a chance, that's too patronising. It's about realising the potential that they have, the skills that they have, and how those skills uh, can actually have a powerful impact into your, into your business. And actually you'll understand um, as well they're formidable leaders because most of them have had to, most of these people have had to under, um, overcome a formidable adversity in their life as they've been growing up anyway. Um, so, so the leadership and the resilience that they present to problem solving and meeting challenges is absolutely phenomenal. And, and it was more about how do we make sure that we're able to, to work with big companies. Now, whether it's our own agencies that we work with, like publicists teaming up with BT and EE and, and launching the uh, inclusive program and working with the football associations around the whole of the United Kingdom and thinking about how we establish the next lead for disabled players using um, online sports programs or online sports platforms uh, is, is one way. Working um, with Disability Rights UK and with Scopes thinking about more disabled um, access, um, which you know, you know, sadly you know, we didn't you know, get it right, even with some of the, the skills that we've got. Um, we still you know, mucked up, but you know, thank goodness people like Disability Rights UK and, and others are there to uh, hold us to account and say, actually, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Uh, and I think that's been really quite powerful. So, so, so for us, it's kind of ingrained, you know, yes, in one arm it's about disability then, and the other arm is about, you know, community outreach and programs into local community and making sure local people get access to jobs. On the other hand, it's about making sure we've got um, talent spotting and awareness programs and insight days for young people so they understand what sectors they're here. On the other hand, it's about setting up um, grant programs so that people can afford to come and study for a year on a fully funded master's program so that um, they don't need to worry about raising the capital and the finance and stepping out for a job. These things all play a part and the disability aspect and the inclusiveness is one part of what we all stand for. Yeah. No, fantastic. And I think definitely some of this stuff around, you know, shifting the narrative, particularly around disabled people and disabled, you know, uh, founders and disabled innovators as not being, you know, people who need more or need extra accommodations or take up extra space or are slower or things like that. But like you said, are more creative and natural problem solvers and more resilient and the sort of, you know, longer term benefits of having people like that in the workforce is a really important one that's often forgotten, I think, when we talk about disability and the supports that disabled people need or, or are looking for. Um, so I guess to kind of, you know, bring it back to one of the points we discussed previously, um, but how, how do you find big businesses are starting to think about, you know, getting disabled people into the workforces and, and sort of trying to think about how their products are more, can be more accessible from, you know, a design point of view and things like that at earlier stages through their interactions, you know, within Here East? obviously a large part of here is to bring people together and connect them. So I was wondering if you've seen, you know, to date, some of that interaction from some of the larger businesses with, with some areas they may not have interacted with before. No, and we do, and we run awareness programs for that, but also, you know, we see it with our own eyes. We see um, in BT how they're a fully inclusive um, environment. And clearly we've got Scope here, which is just remarkable. Um, uh, organization for employment in employment terms of being fully inclusive. But even in the, you know, when I was a trustee, we were looking and challenging the organization at that point that we weren't as inclusive as we thought we were. And we were one of, you know, one of the countries leading disability charities. So it's interesting that you know, even those who advocate were still getting it, you know, not 100% right, shows we've always got something to learn. But when you look at some of the programs we've got running here, whether it's in the um, digital games, digital animation, the esports world, um, 
first and last mile delivery, electrification, smart mobility, all of these things lead to um, an appropriate engagement with um, those who, who may be experiencing disabilities in their life, which actually means it's probably incumbent on those organisations to actually explore uh, and to engage with disabled people to come and work with them. So actually you're talking from a position of authority as opposed to having to go out there. And, and I think that's really, really important. And I, you know, when sadly, when people talk about disability, you know, they often think, is it because you know, we've got people here with guide dogs? Is it here we've got people um, uh, with dogs for um, people who are, are deaf? Is it uh, because we're seeing wheelchair users? But disability comes in many different forms um, as well. And some of those disabilities are obscured from us. Um, so there is probably many, many poor people here, whether it's through hearing, whether it's through sight loss, um, who are experiencing disability um, and are disabled um, and are working within organisations as well, um, who probably wouldn't say they're disabled because they've always lived with it. Um, and I always remember talking to an MP, his name just gone completely out of my head, um, and she said, I'm a wheelchair user, but everybody asks me about disability welfare before, and I haven't got a clue because I've never accessed it. It always worked. You know, what, why do you just come in the wheelchair? I've never worked. I've always worked. And I think, you know, with the people I see around here, whether they've got their personal assistance or whether they're um, able to um, move around um, themselves and travel into London, these, um, these things are not always as obvious as, as you think. You, you think and I think um, when we work with organizations you know we say you know if people are disabled please do not discriminate you know it's a for this legal but there's unconscious bias we hear a lot about that particularly with you know where people have moved the Black Lives Matter program but it happens as well in the disability world so I think um, being able to encourage people to look through the person look at the skills and the talents and the opportunity i think that's what we do you know a lot of and we do a lot of awareness raising on that across campus yeah awesome and i guess to put then you know a final point in it for those who might be in you know in business or in 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 the investment you know business particularly or in you know kind of a space where they they don't currently engage with the disabled community but they're keen to and they're keen to start but they don't know where to go and they don't know what to do and particularly they might feel a sense of you know they're not disabled themselves so they don't want to kind of get things wrong what would you say to someone who's you know potentially thinking about um this challenge but doesn't know how to how to get the ball rolling well whatever you do do it with grace and then do it um respectfully because we will always get it wrong <laughs> we always do um and be aware and think through okay what could this person and yeah and if you just you don't know ask um i think that's one of the one of the the biggest piece of advice I always ask, always say to someone is ask. Don't don't um, don't take for granted. When I ran the Centre for Social Justice, we had a guy who had um, uh, cerebral palsy working for us, and at times he struggled to, um, um, to you know really struggled. If we're walking down Victoria Street to go to Westminster or wherever, you know sometimes find it quite difficult. But I would never just assume that and just order a cab. I would always say, hey, look, you know. Are you happy? We're just going to hop in a cab, just make life a bit easier. And he'd go, that's really, th thank you. Thanks for asking. That'd be really lovely. Thank you. As opposed to um, feeling that someone is a burden. And I think likewise, you know, for me, if I always see a blind person um, in the underground, I won't take it for granted that they need help. But, you know, I will often approach and say, are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help? No, I'm fine. Okay. And they're always like, thank you for asking. So I don't think people will get too upset if you do it, you know, in the right spirit and, 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 grace, and gracefully. Um, likewise, you know, if people are start, you know, are, are really keen to look and think about how we make our workforce more diverse and, and more inclusive, think about how you are going to configure your space so you do not make it the complete opposite for someone, or you don't make it completely over the top so it's like singled out they're going to sit there because that's the place where the disabled person sits that's outrageous so i think it's again about you know what do we need to support you and have a proper conversation how can we help what's going to be best to make you feel more comfortable at work um please please we will not get upset if you tell us to back off <laughs> you know because we get wrong because we will all make mistakes because it's very difficult to put yourself into a disabled person's shoes you can empathize, um, you can understand, you can try and understand. 
unless you experience it, I don't think you can really fully understand. And therefore, communication. Yeah, no, I think that's a great message. I think this, you know, this broader point of, of really trying to empower people and not just presuming things. And like you said, just, just asking, I think is a really important one that a lot of the time people, you know, they, they're afraid of getting things wrong and they sort of entirely, you know, back away. And I think we need to try and kind of encourage people to, like you said, do it, take the chance, things will be wrong, but that's fine. And, and it's a large part of how you approach it um, as opposed to just sort of leaving everything uh, you know, having a void there that then gets filled with stereotypes or, or you know, myths and, and things like that. Um, awesome, Gavin. Two final questions then uh, we can, we'll wrap it up here. But we, we want to ask a little bit about, we always ask everybody about the innovation inspiration, but then also their innovation imagination. So um, if you can forecast 10 years um, ahead, what does Here East look like? And what sort of, you know, how far on the vision-led path that you're on at the moment um, have you got and what sort of impact do you think you've had or you'd like to have? Yeah, we have a bucket list of things that we sort of drew up back in 2012 and we sort of go back to it every so often to make sure we're ticking things off every year, at least we achieve a number of them. Um, I think for, let's say that for, for me, the holy grail is, is, is that I get students who have been through here East um, in one of the four universities and colleges we've got on site now, spin out a company and grow it successfully. Uh, and we haven't achieved that yet, but we build it. That's just a matter of time and levels of support we can put in there. That's number one. So we'd have achieved that. We would still be recognized as a place where creativity, art and culture, technology all come together. You know, if I speak to um, our friends at Studio Wayne McGregor, you know, they are a design and innovation laboratory. They out, their output is predominantly through dance, but not sold through dance. And I think there's a really good example here, which is our output is not just through the quality and the caliber of the businesses we bring in to enhance our investment value of our, of our buildings. I think for us, it's about the exciting, vibrant businesses we bring in, those we take a chance on, those that may not have the strongest, strongest covenant, but you know what? We're gonna help them grow. And, we, and some may fail, but that's fine. We're a big space, and if we have some failures, ultimately, it won't matter um, because we've tried. And I think for us, it's about having a track record, which we were the ones who were bold enough to try. Now, we were the mad ones that in 2012 took on over a million square foot of space in a part of London where everybody was writing about it and things like the tale of two cities or the tale of tech cities, which no one's going to come to the park, it's in the middle of nowhere, it's going to be soulless, you know, and actually we did it. Uh, and 36 million visitors to the park in five years and four and a half thousand people prior to COVID, but this was their home to work and study in. And we will get to our 6,000 at some point in the near future. So I think for us, it's about finishing the job and also being recognized of being true to our vision. So for those 75% of people who, or, or companies or universities who are based here, we didn't just rip up the vision book and say, well, that's that done. We'll just let the last 25% do ever and then sell. It's about finishing the job being true to our vision and making sure that we um, respect those that we said we're going to deliver to, i.e. the local community, uh, and make sure we get on and finish that job. And I think that's where we want to be in 10 years' time. Awesome. Well, fingers crossed. Um, and then a final question is, uh, you know, what would you be saying to, I guess, Gavin 2.0, who you can imagine uh, instead of 2012, it's 2020 and they're They've got this idea, it's a little bit out there, it's a big vision, you know, they want to do something new, but everybody's sort of writing, writing uh, them off. What would you say to them, you know, now? Oh dear, um, <laughs> go for it. But remember, it's going to take you twice as long, it's going to cost you twice as much money, um, and, um, and don't underestimate the pressure on your own life. Um, uh, particularly if you're like me, where you're literally a full in, you know, 100% in. So, um, but I would always encourage, you know, think big, deliver big. Um, sounds a bit crass, talk big, you know, talk your ideas in the early days, vision, vision, vision. Sell it in a way that you take people on that journey. 
make them feel part of that journey, particularly the people that you're going to um, engage with and employ, ultimately bring them on the journey early, empower them and help build them. I've got people here now, they're on the second or third job with us. Um, and you're always looking at ways that you can build them and grow them, even within a small organization, empower them and take them on journey and make them feel valued so that actually, ultimately, at some point, I'm able to go step right back and something like that is full up in our place and there's a whole you know, auditorium going, but others are running it. And actually, we can hand over and say, okay, now it's your turn. Yeah, we've done that. Now get on with it. And I think that's the thing for me, which is, yeah, it's going to be a sad day when I, you know, I'm not going to be around here forever. I've been on it eight years. This is not my sort of farewell message, but you know, the reality is at some point I will go. And at some point I need to prepare the ground for someone to come in. And you know what? They'll probably do it better than I am. They'll probably do it. They'll take it to another level. And I can't wait for that. I can't wait for the fact that I drive past this with my then teenage daughters or my, you know, my family when they're in their 20s. And I go, yeah, you know, you built that, Dad. And I go, yeah, but look at it now. You know, I built that bit, but look at what they're doing now. It's in safe hands. And I think that for me is what I say to Gavin 2.0, which is you know, think big, prepare long-term, and then get ready to hand over. Awesome, that's a great message. And you know, hopefully you're driving in an accessible electric smart mobility vehicle built from you know <laughs> one of the startups here. Um, that's an issue. We've got to get those costs down. Those batteries yeah. are expensive. So we need to drive those <laughs> costs down so we can do that. And that's what people are working on here. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much, Gavin. Thanks for your time. Um, it's been great to chat. Thanks for listening. Next week, we're talking to Abby Roper from City University, London. Do you want to take part in the Elise program or be part of our community? To find out more, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash enterprise forward slash Elise or give us a follow on Twitter at Elise2020. You can find out more about our virtual and physical workshops on social media, funding, app development and a masterclass on accessible comms. Captioning will be available for each session. We'd also like to thank our Elise partners, including Barclays Eagle Labs, Capital Enterprise, Disability Rights UK, Global Disability Innovation Hub, Hackney Council, Here East, Greater London Authority, Inclusion London, London Legacy Development Corporation, Loughborough University London, Plexel, London College of Fashion and UCL. This podcast is powered by Sociability.